Take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 12. And let's re-enter Matthew. We've taken a break this summer, or really this last month, to deal with a number of different topical issues. And uh, we're coming back now to Matthew chapter 12. And I wanted to take just a moment to reacclimate us, to get our bearings back here in Matthew. Uh, I know that this is familiar ground for me. I read this a lot. And uh, I know that many of you, it's familiar to you as well. Your Bibles open up there because of our study time together. So I don't want to insult your intelligence or your memory, but I also don't want to take for granted uh, that we know where we are when we come to Matthew chapter 12. If we flip back in our Bibles to the very first page of Matthew, we find um, right on the first page the very clear intention that Matthew has under the Holy Spirit's direction in writing this gospel account, this narrative account uh, regarding Jesus from Nazareth. He begins in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, that is Christ, the son of David, that is the fulfillment of the Davidic promises. He is the king that was promised, the perfect king who would reign in perfection, the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the son of promise, the promise of seed to Abraham that would multiply beyond the number of the sands of the sea and would be good news, would be gospel to the nations. This is him. He is the fulfillment of both the promise to David and the promise to Abraham. Matthew's goal in all that he writes is to clearly establish the fact of the messianic work of Jesus from Nazareth. It's not complicated. It's not difficult to grasp, but it is important for us as we come to paragraph after paragraph after paragraph to understand that Matthew's goal is not to inform your historical knowledge, though he certainly does that. His goal is not even to affirm what you already believe about Jesus from Nazareth, although he does that as you read this as a Christian, if you are in Christ. His singular goal is to make it painfully obvious that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And that there is no other. There's no one else to wait for. There's no one else to look for. There's no other righteousness to lean upon and to trust. Jesus is it. And he carries through all the way through this book and takes section after section after section of Jesus' life and ministry and calls us to focus on it in light of the fact that it proves his messianic claim. So you remember that Matthew does not write chronologically. We're not reading this as we would read Luke's gospel, where we're going day by day or week by week or month by month. Matthew interchanges the dates because his goal is thematic. He's writing to make a point. And so any of the accounts that Matthew uses and compiles, he does so to make a point to us. And that point is very simply, Jesus is the Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. The genealogies speak to that fact because they prove that God was preserving the seed of Abraham and David even to the person of Jesus Christ, the promised one. We flip the page to chapter 1 and verse 18, the second half of the chapter, and we see the miraculous birth pointing directly at Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 2 carries on with the wise men and the flight to Egypt. And throughout chapter 2, all the way through this chapter, we see the phrase repeated, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. So Matthew says, all that was prophesied is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the fulfillment He's the answer from the Father. John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus is in fact the Messiah as he baptizes him and the Father joins the chorus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, we find the Messiah King in the wilderness being tempted and he is proven to be the perfect Lamb, the only promised Messiah as he stands and resists temptation in sinless perfection. The point of chapter 4 is not to learn how to fight temptation, though we do, which is leaning upon the word, using truth as the barrier to lies from the enemy. The point of chapter 4 
is to establish Jesus is the Messiah. Middle of that chapter, he begins his ministry, calls his disciples, and focuses attention on teaching. We pick up in chapters 5 through 7, which has really been the heart of our study in the sermon that was on the side of a mountain, which is familiar to us as the Sermon on the Mount. Here Jesus outlines for us what his kingdom looks like, and in particular, what his kingdom citizens look like. What are the people that are Christ followers, the ones that he's redeemed, that he's called into his fellowship, into himself, what do those people look like? What do they think like? What's the effect they have on their culture? And what is it that is expected of them as followers of the king, of the kingdom of heaven? None other than Jesus himself. And so chapter 7 carries us through all the way to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew then turns a corner and begins talking about the miraculous power of Jesus the Messiah as he heals every disease and as he casts out demons repeatedly. And so in chapters 8 and 9, we see the power of Jesus put on display to affirm his messianic claim. So don't, don't be caught by the repetition of this. This is Matthew's goal. He wants you to repeatedly end the chapter and think to yourself, Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Chapter 10, he facilitates and mobilizes his disciples to go out and to spread the kingdom message, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. And really indirectly calls upon all of us to be his kingdom missionaries. We were gripped as we studied through chapter 10 and were aware of the high cost of being a follower of Christ. Because a follower of Christ is a spokesman for Christ. A follower of Christ is a missionary for Christ. You and I are missionaries to the Central Valley. You are missionaries to your neighbors, to your co-workers. What are you? I'm a missionary of Jesus Christ. That is the role, that is the assumed reality for those who follow Christ. Chapter 10 made that clear for us. Chapter 11 then is really where we turn a corner and we will follow in this in chapter 12 today. But in chapter 11 we turn a corner and Matthew begins to show the opposition that was rising to Jesus in his ministry. And the opposition itself becomes a cause for understanding that he was in fact the Messiah. His message was offensive. His claim to be the son of God is offensive. And the opposition begins to rise in chapter 11 and will carry us through a major portion of gospel account from Matthew. We saw John the Baptist question the validity of Jesus as the Messiah. We saw the critical crowds question Jesus. We saw the indifferent cities judged by Jesus, given woes. They were doomed because of their indifference to him. And finally, we come to chapter 12, and we find the infamous group of opposers to Jesus' ministry. I mean, as Christian ease goes, as the lingo of the Christians go, these people are probably as familiar as Jesus himself. Because they are seen throughout the Bible as his number one enemies And we know their name. They are called the Pharisees. The Pharisees. We find the Pharisees in chapter 12. And we find their opposition growing. So much so that in the middle of the chapter. They're going to say that he is demon possessed. They are incredibly intimidated by the ministry of Jesus. Because it is stealing away their glory. Their power. Their control. And they ultimately will be the ones who mastermind his capture, who provoke the Romans to crucify him. It is these individuals who will scream, crucify him, and lead the people in opposition to Jesus from Nazareth. Matthew's goal is the same. He wants us to understand from these paragraphs that Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Let's pick up our reading and let's read together verses 1 through 8 this morning and focus our attention for a few moments on the truths that God has for us from these words. These words, brothers and sisters, these are the words of God. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the guiltless. Do not miss verse 8, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Sinful humanity across the board always, always, always desires to skirt the holy standard, the righteous standard of God. It is the default mechanism within sinful humanity to try to downplay and set aside the requirement, the righteous requirement of God for us. He alone created us. He alone is the judge. He alone establishes what is righteousness. He is inherently righteous. Therefore, all that he demands is righteousness. And we, as sinful humanity, apart from God's grace, desperately want to be away from his law. Some, as Romans 1 tells us, suppress that. Go as hard and as fast away from the law as possible. In every disobedience, in every debauchery, attempting to relegate the law to some hidden corner where they do not have to think about it. Maybe that was your testimony apart from Christ. Maybe before the Lord rescued you from your sin, your goal was to not be accountable to the law by not having to think about the law, by living in any way possible according to your own law. So you tried to squeeze the law out of your conscience by living as headlong against it as possible. But for others, there is a different kind of deception. There's a different kind of setting aside the law. And it is to set it aside by establishing one's own standard, making a man-made version and interpretation of the law so that the law can be kept. See, there's two sides, but both have the same goal. One says, I don't want the law to be a part of my life. Therefore, I will do whatever I want and will try to relegate it to No influence in my life. The other says, I don't want the law's standard on my life. So I'm going to establish my own version of what the law says. And I'm going to keep it. And I'm going to consider myself righteous. I'm going to say things like, thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. Two different ways to set aside the law. And the Pharisees that we encounter Today And we're going to stay with these Pharisees. They're going to be with us for a while. They are those who suppose themselves to be keeping the law. By establishing their own man-made, keepable version of the law. The law of God is to be a tutor to grace. Galatians 3 tells us, verses 24 and 25. It was to point people to Christ. The law was never intended... To be some keepable version that earned righteousness before God. If you, if you view the law in your Old Testament scriptures, the Mosaic law that was given to the Jewish people as the nation of Israel under God's leadership. If you view that law as God saying, if you keep all these, I'll be happy with you. You have misunderstood the law. The, the law was to create desperation. The law was to point out sin. Sin that had always been there, but had never been clearly identified. The law now identified sin. It put a finger on it. It checked boxes. You sin, you sin, sin, sin. And the law created a desperation for forgiveness. Something has to be killed for me to be forgiven. And goat after goat and sheep after sheep and turtle dove after turtle dove. Those poor turtle doves went down again and again and again. So that the people realized that shedding of blood was the only way of forgiveness, but those animals did not provide forgiveness. 
They only pointed toward the only one who can provide forgiveness, which Josiah so clearly helped us understand a few weeks ago. Goats could not offer forgiveness to you because you're not a goat. As he told us, and we stared back at him. He said, told me later, I thought that was a joke, but everybody seemed to take that very seriously. Like, that's profound. That's profound. I'm not a goat. Therefore, a goat cannot save me. The law is to point us to Christ. We desperately need a substitute. And the Jewish people needed a substitute. The Mosaic law was over them. Some attempted to run away from it. Some attempted to keep it by their own standard. Both were setting aside God's righteousness. There is one truth that every legalist, that is everyone who tries to earn righteousness. You were born one of these. You think you can earn it. I think I can earn it. Apart from grace, this is our default thinking. And there's only one truth that every legalist must bow under. One self-righteousness crushing truth. Jesus is the Lord of the law. That's, that is the truth. Jesus is the Lord of the law. No legalist will submit to that. No legalist will acknowledge that. No legalist will set himself aside and acknowledge that Jesus from Nazareth is the Lord of the law. Therefore, Matthew presents these paragraphs for us so that we might be overwhelmed with the evidence from the mouth of Jesus himself and from the opposition of the Pharisees, which mirrors our hearts apart from grace. We would be consumed and we would be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse number one starts out at that time. And I just want to take a moment to set that in its context. At that time, we read that and we say, what in the what time? I, I don't see any time designated here. At that time simply connects us back to chapter 11. At the point at which the opposition was rising, Jesus also dealt with the Pharisees. That's all that Matthew's saying. About this time, about the time that he said, the yoke is easy and the burden is light for those who come to me and are desperate for my relief. Remember at the end of chapter 11? About the time that Jesus was teaching the people that if they would respond in faith and repentance to him and to him alone, that he would forgive them. About the time that he was doing that, in chapter 11, these discussions happened. That's all that... Matthew means by at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the law. If you walk away with nothing else, understand this. That means that he alone can fulfill it. And he alone can be the righteous substitute for you as a sinner. Now we're just going to split this up into two of the most non-creative sections I think I've ever heard. We're going to see the accusation and then we're going to see the answer. Okay? Just as simple as it gets. Alliteration, but simple nonetheless. The accusation from the Pharisees and the answer from Jesus. Let's look at the accusation. What is it that they are accusing Jesus' disciples of? And what is it that they're accusing Jesus of, really? At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples had growling stomachs. We don't keep the Sabbath. We don't observe the Sabbath. Uh, this is Sunday. This is the Lord's day. This is not the Christian Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. Sunday is our day set aside for the Lord. But many of you understand what it's like to be on the Lord's day and to be hungry. Okay? Some of you right now are empathizing with the disciples. All right? They're out on a stroll on the Sabbath day. And they're hungry. That's all there is to the story. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now that's critical for us to understand what's going on with this accusation. Because at the surface level, if we take this at, at, at face value, and the Pharisees are the people who know the law better than anyone else, they think all the day long about the law, they are trying hard to keep the law and they say that the disciples are breaking the law. We might have cause to think maybe they are. Maybe Jesus is just turning a blind eye 
to a little white sin on the part of his disciples. I mean, maybe Jesus is not nearly as serious about the righteous standard of God as we think. So it's important for us to grasp what's taking place here. Number one, the point of conflict in the accusation has to do with the Sabbath. I mean, it's all about the Sabbath. All right, the Sabbath was the favorite day of the Pharisee because it was the day when they set aside the time obviously created by God and established by God in the Mosaic law that there would be a day set aside for rest and worship. The Pharisees thrived on the Sabbath. It was their day of all days. It was their favorite opportunity to get after Jesus too. As you're going to see in the next several sections, we're going to watch these Pharisees go after Jesus. The Sabbath day had serious implications. Why are these legalists so worked up about the Sabbath? Well, let's find out. Let's go back to Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And let's look at some Old Testament texts this morning to help us see where the concern, which originally, no doubt, was a humble, honest concern on the part of God's people, where that concern began and how it got to where it was corrupted at the point of these Pharisees and their confrontation with Jesus. Exodus chapter 20. Here's the command from the Lord, verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a day is a Sabbath, a rest to the Lord, your God, to Yahweh, your God on it. You shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within the gates. For in six days, here's why this is the standard for in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it sanctified, made it holy, made it unto him. Okay, so Exodus 20 is the giving of the law. You're very familiar with this because you are aware of the first part of Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You know these Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Continue on in Exodus and turn the pages over to chapter 31. (coughs) Chapter 31. And notice the severity of God's righteous standard. Ken Harvey did a great job this morning reminding us of God's perfections, his holiness, and the demand that he places for us to respond rightly to his holiness. Here's what we find about the Sabbath in Exodus 31. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout all generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it will be slapped on the wrist and sent to detention. No. Did you see? Do you see what's there? Everyone who profane. Do you see what it says? Do you know why they are so wrapped up in this? Everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. This is capital punishment for the nation of Israel. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. There's no way in the Hebrew to make that say anything other than kill them if they break the Sabbath. This is the holiness of God. It hasn't changed today from that day. God demands perfect holiness. If he set aside the seventh day to glory and rejoice and rest in all that he had done in creation, and we are called upon to rest on a seventh day, then the holy standard must be kept. The nation of Israel was demanded that they keep the Sabbath holy unto God. And so the Jews were, rightly so, very concerned about the Sabbath observance. In fact, as those sinful human beings born into the nation of Israel who want to set aside the law of God and its standard for them, they opted to create an environment where they could earn their own righteousness. They could keep this standard. They could keep the standard by establishing guardrails all around the standard, which is keep the Sabbath holy 
and they could keep the Sabbath, although it was anything but holy. Verse 1 in Matthew chapter 12, the disciples began to eat. Here's, the, here's what's happening. Some, for some reason, the Pharisees are out in this field, okay? I don't, I don't, we don't get any information about the story. We don't know where they're walking. We don't know what's happening here. But Jesus and the disciples are walking through the field. And what would happen is those who would harvest the field would always leave the corners of their property unharvested so that anybody could come through who was hungry, who needed food, and they could use that corner as a resource. You remember this, right? You remember this from Ruth and Naomi? Remember good old Boaz? He started leaving way more than the corner open, okay? He started thinking, I like that person. That, that, oh, that whole story is built on this. The same concept. So Jesus is walking through a field. The men are hungry. And they have every lawful right to go and take some grain. The Sabbath law was that you could not use any instrument for labor. You couldn't use any tool to harvest. That would be considered work. And the Pharisees were assigning to the disciples work. They were working on the Lord's Day, on the Holy Day. They were working because they had picked grain, rubbed it in their hands, which was like the, uh, um, the threshing floor. And, so they were, and they probably blew away the chaff. Uh, it's unbelievable the way the Pharisees uh, diced down what it was to work on the Sabbath day. But they were condemning the, Phar- the Pharisees were condemning the disciples because of this picking of the food to eat simply to establish a little bit of a meal or a snack on their way. The Pharisees saw it. They said, look, Jesus, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, it's carefully, it's important to carefully know what they mean by lawful. All right. You will not find in your Old Testament that you cannot pick a piece of grain when you're hungry on the Sabbath day. You won't find it. In fact, we just read the foundational truths that God gave regarding the Sabbath. You shall not work on the Sabbath day. In the Talmud, which is the Jewish uh, interpretation of the law. All right. This is a book that would discourage you beyond belief if you saw how big it is. All right. In the Talmud, there are 24 chapters on Sabbath laws. 24 chapters on laws that help you keep the Sabbath so that you basically can earn your own righteousness. Now, listen to some of these. John MacArthur gives these to us. And I'm so grateful that he did the work in the Talmud because me and the Talmud, not friends. I'm glad John did it for us. Okay. One law specified that the basic limit for travel was 3,000 feet from one's house. But there were various exceptions. If you'd placed some food the day before within 3,000 feet of your house, you could go there and eat it. And because the food was considered an extension of your house, you could go another 3,000 feet. But if you went further than that, You were probably working. You were probably doing too much. And that would be considered breaking the Sabbath law. Certain objects could be lifted up and put down only from and to certain places. Other things could only be lifted up from a public place and set down in a private place. It's just amazing the kind of laws that they placed. Eating restrictions were extensive. You could not eat anything larger than an olive. Or you would be exerting too much energy and you would be in danger of breaking the law. Um, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other was prohibited. Because it took too much uh, brain power to catch it. I, I don't know. Jugglers were in a hard time in Israel during the Sabbath day. All right, Laws were always, always so that man could avoid the righteous standard. Which we're going to see in just a moment. Tailors did not carry a needle with them on the Sabbath for fear they might be tempted to mend a garment and thereby perform work. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp, although a fire already lit could be used within certain limits. Baths could not be taken for fear some of the water might spill on the floor and wash the floor. You see this? This is avoiding God's righteous standard. If you've thought of legalism as anything other than setting aside God's law, that's exactly what this is. And the Talmud is laced with this kind of avoidance of the standard. And the Pharisees are saying, according to the Jewish interpretation of the law and the 24 chapters of the Talmud, your disciples are breaking the law. And Jesus has an answer. He does not hesitate 
He does not wait one moment. He comes back with an answer. And that's where we see in verse number three, we've seen the accusation. Now we see the answer. And it's fascinating. What does Jesus answer with? Two questions. I love the way Jesus argues. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profaned the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, what is the answer? Well, first of all, let's just be clear. Jesus is sticking a dagger into the Pharisees' self-righteous, arrogant hearts with the first words out of his mouth. Look at verse number three and those first words. Have you not read? Do you understand what that's like? That would be like me coming out to one of you growers or farm working people and saying, I don't know if you thought about this. You might want to think about pruning these trees. And you're looking at me like, what what are you doing? Uh, You don't know the first thing about pruning trees. You can't even prune the one tree that's in your backyard. Okay, you have someone else come do it. You don't know anything about it. We know about pruning trees. I know what's good for trees. You go back to your office, buckaroo, with your little soft hands because you don't work outside. I'll take care of the trees. All right? When Jesus says to the Pharisees, have you not read? That is a slap in their face. He's saying, have you not engaged with the Old Testament? Have you not engaged with the word of God? Do you not know what God has said? And the clear answer to them is, of course we have. We're the keepers of the law. We're the keepers of the word. We're the righteous people. We're the ones who don't need a savior. We just want a Messiah who will come and establish reign over Rome. We don't need a Jesus to die in our place. We don't need a substitute. We're Abraham's children. We saw last week. The Pharisees, no doubt, did not miss this implication. If you are accusing us of sin, Jesus says, you probably don't read your Bible. Unbelievable words to the self-righteous Pharisees. Now notice what he uses. He uses David and he uses the priest. The story of David, if you're not familiar, is from 1 Samuel 21. You could read that story, but it's a sad story. Very sad. David's running from Saul. He goes into the priest because they're starving, he and his men. They want something to eat. He goes and he lies to them, tells them that he's there on an errand from the king and that uh, he needs desperately to have food. The priests go along with it allow him to eat the, the show bread, which was the bread for the priest only to consume. This was forbidden. This was clearly against the law. They go along with it. Saul finds out about it, finds out that the priest aided and abetted David, who is his enemy, and he goes down there and he slaughters all the priests. Just to make a statement. It's a terrible story. First Samuel 21. But Jesus says, Do you know what David did? So he uses David, all right? And Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. So he asked them a question. Have you not read what David did with the showbread? Because he knew that the Pharisees did not condemn David for that. They did not condemn him as being unlawful or as being worthy of death because he went into the temple and he ate the bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. And Jesus' point, as we're going to see in a moment, is crystal clear. I'm greater than David. That's his point. And you're going to pick at me for breaking your petty law that you created so that you could earn your own self-righteousness? David broke the standard given by God. He ate the bread that was forbidden by God to eat. And you don't get upset with David and you're going to get upset with me and with my disciples because we're not keeping your version, your interpretation, your standards around the law. You see that? It's lesser to greater. David did that. You're not upset. I'm the Messiah, and I did something not even close to that, and you're upset. He's pointing out the foolishness of their thinking. Second illustration is the priest. Numbers chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10 say that it's the priest labor in the temple. The whole point of the priest defiling the temple is that they work there. On the Sabbath, the priests have to work. So every single Sabbath day, the priests are defiling the temple. I mean, they're working. And the Pharisees would never in a million years have thought that the priests within the temple were somehow breaking God's standard because they understood that there was 
built into the law an understanding that on the Sabbath, when worship was happening, those who led in worship under God's provision and delegation were not required to stay away from work. And so Jesus uses the lesser to greater, and he says in verse number six, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If the temple got the priest off the hook, according to God's law, then let me guarantee you that the kingdom being in your presence and the king of the kingdom in your presence certainly allows for me not to follow your laws. You see what he's doing here? He's arguing from saying you are all bent out of shape about your own standard that you've set up so you can keep righteousness, you can earn it, and you're unaffected by what the scriptures teach, would, according to a flat reading of the scriptures, would condemn these individuals, David and the priest. You have a misguided, self-righteous, arrogant condemnation. He calls it condemning the guiltless. In verse number nine, the implication is crystal clear. Temple service was cause for an exception to the law of God. Surely the Messiah's disciples eating was an exception to the man-made code of the Pharisees. He goes on in his answer and he drives the knife deeper into the heart of the Pharisees in verse number seven. And this is where we really must take pause and consider what Jesus says. In verse number seven, he quotes from Hosea six, six. He says, if you had known what it means. So he's gone away from, have you read? Now he says, if you could know what it means, and they can't because of their blinded eyes. Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is the Lord, is the master of the Sabbath. The punchline from the Lord Jesus to the self-righteous Pharisee to the legalist is simply this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does that mean? All that Hosea means in in 6.6 and all that Jesus is bringing to bear upon these legalists is that the law was to grab the hearts of God's people for God. He desires heart change. He desires mercy from the inside. The Sabbath was a time for man to pour out his heart before God. We know this, the king and his kingdom is all about the heart. The Sermon on the Mount kept reminding us, God is not impressed with you keeping your own version, your own setup of righteousness. He wants your heart. The law was to drive you and to drive your heart to a place of desiring and showing as you receive it, mercy. God is unimpressed by the sacrifices of his people if their heart is not established before him. Jesus understands the point of the law, but these self-righteous Pharisees could not. If you had known what this means, and they couldn't, is the inference, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. So, the Pharisees had two problems. The legalist today, even, has two problems. One, they do not understand the righteousness of God. They may think they do. They may think that going to church every week or a lot of weeks, they may think that picking up a Bible and reading it, they may think that doing prayer times, they may think that whatever it is that they think is God's righteousness, is God's righteousness, but it's not. They may think they understand the standard because they have established their own version of the standard. But like the Pharisees, they have missed The central meaning of the holy standard of God. Desiring a heart that has been radically altered. Not mere works or sacrifices. And secondly, they have misunderstood. They have missed. They've missed completely the Lord of the law. Jesus says in verse number eight, for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The kingdom is all about Christ and it's all about Our view of Christ. Finally, Jesus hits the heart of the matter for the Pharisees. They cannot, they will not, and they cannot submit to his lordship over their law. What is the offense? Is that Jesus disregarded their Talmud interpretation of the law. That's the offense. I'm righteous. 
I'm keeping God's law by my own version of the interpretation, by my own guardrails. The Jews were famous for if this is the center and this is God's clear command to us, let's put a rail, let's put a guardrail out here so that we don't ever cross the guardrail and fall into the hole. And then let's put a fence around the guardrail so that we never trip over the guardrail. And let's put a cement wall around the fence so that somehow we don't climb over the fence, trip over the guardrail. And, and if you don't have the same cement wall, you're not righteous. And Jesus said, phooey on your cement wall. That's what he said. He said, eat up, disciples. Get some grain. Have a snack. And they could not handle it because Jesus was and is the Lord of the law. That has everything to do with us today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, remind us that Jesus did not come to remove the law. He came to fill it. Only the Lord of the law. Only the Lord of the law can fulfill the law. Understand this. Only the Lord of the Sabbath can keep the Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, the Sabbath has to be kept for you to be in heaven. There are no Sabbath breakers in heaven. And only the Lord of the Sabbath can dictate what the Sabbath is and keep it. And you and I and the Pharisees and the Jews that were hearing this confrontation desperately need someone to keep it. And somehow to have their keeping it credited to our account. Understand what's happening here. Jesus is confronting the very heart of the matter, literally speaking, with the Pharisees. They could not, they could not come to the end of themselves and acknowledge that they were in fact sinners and in desperate need of the Messiah, the one Jesus of Nazareth. In Romans chapter 3, we don't have time to go there, but in Romans 3, write this passage down if you're taking notes, verses 21 to 31, we see that our righteousness is not in fact ours. It's ours by faith. It's Christ's righteousness. And the, the, the impact of that, the impact of the Lord of the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath on your behalf, filling up the law in every way, completing the righteous standard of the Father. The impact of that is, you and I don't get to boast. That's the, that's the end. How is it that we somehow get some glory out of being a follower of Christ? We somehow get some glory out of our salvation. Well, if we understand and if we are thinking clearly about the Lord of the Sabbath, we get none. We get none because we know according to the standard of God's righteousness, if it is clearly understood from the word, we are doomed. And he alone has kept it. It's his righteousness that's been credited to our accounts. Now, here's the final implication. The Jews could not keep the Sabbath no matter how hard they tried. Okay? They were not keeping the Sabbath. They were not keeping it because the Sabbath is a day set apart for holy, perfect hearts to focus on God's goodness. You understand this? You say, but, but Adam, the Jews did not work. On the Sabbath. I mean, if they didn't walk 3,000 feet, they certainly didn't work. If they didn't splash water from their tub onto the floor, they certainly didn't work. Weren't they keeping the law? No. Because the law was intended for the heart. The law was a tutor to grace. They were not keeping the law, nor could they keep the law. They needed Jesus to keep the Sabbath for them, and by faith to have that righteous standard credited to their accounts. That obedience on their back and their sinful, sinful failure to keep the law placed on him and taken to a cross and a body broken and blood spilled so that they would know forgiveness. So what? What's the end of this paragraph for us? Let me ask you a couple of questions by way of application. Number one, do you trust and hope only in the perfect law-keeping righteousness of Jesus, the Lord of the law? I mean, this is serious, a real question to ask yourself. When I look at my life and I think of the eternal uh, reality of a judgment, do I really believe that only the perfect 
righteousness of the Lord of the law could earn me entrance into the kingdom. Now listen, Peter will never ask you why he should let you into heaven. It's not going to happen. Peter's not at the gate. But that's a common question. And if your answer to Peter in your mind is anything other than the perfect, righteous obedience of Jesus credited to my account at the cross and my sinful failure punished on Christ at the cross, if, that, if there's anything other than Jesus, then you've misunderstood. And the answer will be depart from me. And it won't be from Peter. It'll be from Jesus himself. I never knew you. Worker of iniquity. You didn't keep the Sabbath. You didn't keep my standard. Only my son. Keeps my standard. And only my son. Can cover you. What is it that you trust? Number two. Are you attempting. Even today. Even by being here in a green chair. Are you attempting to earn God's affection through your own interpretation of the law of God? And let me put this in two levels. Are you trying to do that for your salvation? And then here's the scary question. Are you trying to do that for your sanctification? Are you trying to grow by doing things that God will notice and like you more? I mean, really, as Christians, this is kind of the default struggle we have with our flesh. We really understand as believers that we were poor in spirit. There's nothing left to us. There's no righteousness in us. And so the spirit of God gave us life. He opened our eyes. We saw the beauty of Christ and our hearts were drawn. We could do nothing but repent and believe. And at the moment of salvation, that is so crystal clear to us. And as the years go by and as the days go by and as the flesh is battling against the spirit, we find ourselves attempting to live out our growth in Christ by some other means than the way we were saved. And so we begin to do things like, well, I want to be a good Christian. So good Christians go to church. What does a good Christian mean? A good Christian let me just clarify, a good Christian is one who is unending in his trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's a good Christian. You want to be a good Christian? I do, desperately. Want to bring glory to God? I do desperately, and I know you do as well. If you're here this morning, you're in Christ. Do not allow legalism to rob you of growth with some artificial form of it. Look to the cross. Look to the blood-stained cross and look to the empty tomb. That's your hope. That's your growth. That's where grace comes from. That's how God is changing you. It would be important for us to ask ourselves in what way, and we will this week, <clears throat> if not personally in our grace groups, in what way can you root out all forms of legalism and pursue boasting only in the cross? And how has self-righteousness crept back into your growth and grace? You find yourself dropping little hints to people around you that make sure that they know you are a growing Christian. You find yourself pleased with yourself and thinking God must be pleased too. Brothers and sisters in Christ, understand this shocking statement. God can never love you more than he does today. Never. His love for you will never grow. It'll never grow. It is infinite. He loves you with the love he has for his son. He's not impressed. But he loves to have you love and trust his son. And put him on display. He will never love you more than he loves you today. Self-righteousness will rob you of your relationship. And the warmth of your relationship with your heavenly father. And it will deceive you into thinking that you somehow get to boast in yourself and the cross. Don't allow it to happen. Don't become a Pharisee at Grace Church of the Valley. I don't want to be one of these. The Spirit doesn't want any of us to be one of these. He wants us, through Matthew's writing, to understand this one truth. Jesus is the Lord of the law. So... 
Jesus alone can fulfill the law and can be the righteous substitute for sinners like the Pharisees, like the disciples, like Adam Bailey, like you. Trust him. Look to him. Exalt in him. Set your mind above on the things of Christ. Love his word. Learn from his word. Live in his word. Trust the spirit to give you guidance and direction. Speak for him. Be bold. Take risks. Suffer for him. Allow him to be glorified through us. Father, this is a a clear warning to us as we look at the Pharisee's life. And it's clearly a rebuke of the Pharisee's self-righteous deception. But in these verses, from 1 to 8, we find not just a rebuke, we find words of hope. These, this, this is the gospel. There is a Lord of the Sabbath. There is one who has authority over all things. There is one who has created us and sustains us. There is one who has perfectly obeyed you, Father. And it is not us. We confess we desperately needed that obedience to be transferred to our account. And by your gracious plan and through your sovereign work, you've done it. You've done it through your own son. Who perfectly obeyed you, who died in our place after living in our place. Who's resurrected, given life so that we might know life eternal. This is our joy. This is our confidence. Teach us not to steal back your glory by trusting in ourselves and our own working out of your righteousness. Father, I pray this morning for legalists that are here that do not know your grace. Please break them, bring them to the end of themselves so that they can see their righteous achievement as nothing more than a pile of garbage for the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For those of us who battle with our flesh and the desire to create our own system of growth, teach us, teach us to love grace, to lean upon grace, to long for grace, to ask for grace, to look to you for unmerited favor at every turn because the cross is true. And because the tomb is really empty, you've opened our eyes. Help us, Father, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by which we've been called. We ask these things not so that we will be known as a church that lives this way, but so that you would be known as a God who transforms people like this. And that your fame would be spread throughout this valley, throughout our communities, that you would be more famous because Grace Church is here than if it weren't. This is our desire. We believe it's yours as well. So we ask it by faith, in confidence, in the name of our Savior. Amen.